Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I grew up thinking of human beings as very tribal animals. This may have been the product of a childish imagination, but that's the way I thought. My little familial unit belonged to several different tribes. We were Dutch, not Polish. We were Calvinists, not Catholics. We drove Chevrolets, not Fords. We used Tide, not Cheer. Colgate, not Crest. Coke, not Pepsi. We were Spartans, not Wolverines. I only became a Wolverine when I fell in love with one and had to convert to Ann Arborism. (laughs) Betraying my father, I faithfully raised my children in the one true Wolverine faith. Brands tell us who we are, don't they? We love our brands. But now I buy a lot of generic, unbranded merchandise. Denominations are brands, and there's something to be said for an unbranded Christianity, isn't there? The other day I read a book with a provocative title, Was the Reformation a Mistake? It will not surprise you that the author of that book earned his Ph.D. from Boston College, that venerable Jesuit institution, and now is the chair of the theology department at Mundelein Seminary at the University of St. Mary at the Lake, not far from here. Was the Reformation a mistake? Maybe. Kind of. Sort of. The great Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once referred to the Reformation as a tragic necessity. And you see what he means, right? It was a necessity because the Church of the Middle Ages was such a wreck, such a corruption, such a departure from its New Testament sources. But it was also tragic because the Reformation splintered and fractured the witness of the Church to God's one truth. And so Luther is to Christian history what Pandora is to Greek mythology. You remember the story of Pandora, right? The first woman, the Greek Eve, she was the one who took the lid off of her jar or off of her box or whatever and let out every pestilence and plague and earthquake and famine and hurricane that has afflicted humanity ever since. Now, she eventually succeeded on fixing the lid back onto her jar, but it was too late. Every evil thing had escaped, and there was only one thing left there in her jar. Do you know what it was? Hope. Trapped in there forever. Luther's sort of like that. Once Luther taught Christians that they could think for themselves, that's what they've been doing with a vengeance for 500 years ever since, creating all their little private churches. And so 125 years ago, Joseph Sears and a couple of other wise Kenilworthians presciently predicted that as year succeeded year into the future, denominationalism would look increasingly like a mistake. You've heard about the lady who went to the post office to purchase some stamps and the clerk asked her what denominations and she said, oh my Lord, has it come to this? I'll take 10 Methodists. (laughs) 10 Catholics and 10 Presbyterians. My friend Jeff is a Presbyterian minister, and one day he overheard a conversation between his 8-year-old son Jimmy and one of Jimmy's new friends. And Jimmy, of course, is a preacher's kid, so the conversation naturally tilted towards church. And Jeff overheard one of the boys say to the other, What abomination do you belong to? (laughs) He was 
pretty right, wasn't he? Denominations can be abominations. In 1893, according to our master historian Sally Campbell, the Union Church was the 13th building in the village. The Union Church of Kenilworth is older than the village of Kenilworth, which wasn't incorporated until 1896. There were only 15 families, and the chapel they built for themselves was way bigger than they needed for generations. It cost $6,100, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's about $158,000 in today's money. Now, I suppose most of it came from Mr. Sears, that great philanthropist and faithful Swedenborgian. But still, we've been living off their prescience and off their generosity ever since. And their emphasis on union and on inclusiveness starts with those two signature texts that they selected as our mission statement. One from the Hebrew prophet Micah, one from the Christian evangelist Matthew. Actually, Jesus says this uh, uh, passage in all three synoptic gospels, recited so capably a moment ago by our orator, Ryan. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God, says the prophet Micah. Love God above all and your neighbor as yourself, says Jesus, in all three synoptic gospels. And those are Catholic texts, aren't they? Catholic with a small c. Catholic because they are for every God-fearer of every stripe, of every garb, and every tongue, and every place, in every time. Right? I mean, who's going to argue with that? Only Joseph Stalin and Sifilo Saipov. Justice, kindness, humility, love God, love your neighbor. That is exemplary religion distilled to its purest essence. Now, they could have chosen any number of signature texts of our faith. They could have chosen born of a Virgin Mary, or ascended into heaven, or descended into hell, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But those are very strong, muscular texts, right? It takes capacious credulity and a suspension of disbelief to hold on to those texts. They wanted something that all of us could grip onto. And so you start with love God above all and your neighbor as yourself, and maybe eventually you get to we have seen his glory. Glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Because they didn't want just the most muscular Christians among us. They wanted even the unequivocally skeptical. Our founders, you see, were suspicious about the narcissism of small differences. Do you know that wonderful phrase made famous by Sigmund Freud. He actually borrowed it from somebody else, but he made it famous in his book Civilization and Its Discontents. And what he means by the narcissism of small differences is that most of us engage in our fiercest disputes with those who are almost but not quite like us. It's a quirk of the human spirit. The narcissism of small differences comes from the human need to find and even to exaggerate small differences from others to convince ourselves that there's something special about us. There's something distinctive about us. And Freud, Freud talks about the narcissism of small differences because it's so inward-gazing, right? It's so narcissistic. We do it to stroke our egos. We scoff at the young men of Chicago who join gangs. But we're all gang members. We all join a bunch of gangs in our lifetimes. So, for instance, Wesleyan Methodists don't spend their energy arguing with Jews. They spend most of their energy arguing with United Methodists. 
And Missouri Synod Lutherans don't spend their energy arguing with Muslims, they spend their energy arguing with evangelical Lutherans. And Democrats don't spend their time arguing with communists, communists are a lost cause. So we spend all our time arguing with Republicans, from whom they are virtually indistinguishable in the larger scheme of things. That's less true in 2017, but you see my point. And even in Jesus' day, Pharisees didn't spend their time and energy arguing with Romans or with zealots. The Romans were a lost cause. They were pagans. The zealots were crazy and dangerous. So Pharisees in Jesus' day spent their time and energy arguing with Sadducees, who were almost but not quite like them. And so the great commandment comes out of an ancient instance of the narcissism of small differences. This Pharisee, a lawyer, has just watch Jesus annihilate a Sadducee in a verbal dispute, and this emboldens him to spar with Jesus in the same way, to match intellectual and theological wits with Jesus. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And so an instance of the narcissism of small differences gives us this greatest commandment. Love God above all, your neighbor is yourself. And so our founders thought it just unseemly that Presbyterians and Lutherans couldn't worship the same God in the same place at the same time. You think the world could use an institution like Kenilworth Union Church just now? After the imbroglio in Charlottesville last August, Nancy Gibbs, then editor of Time magazine, pointed out that in the 2016 presidential election of the 3,113 counties in the United States, the election was decided by fewer than 10 points in just 303 counties. 303 out of 3,113. In 1,196 counties, the margin was 50 points or more, 5-0. 40% of the counties in the United States ended up in a landslide one way or the other. And Ms. Gibbs says, we have self-sorted into private pockets of affirmation and where we live shapes what we believe. And these days, Democrats and Republicans no longer stop at disagreeing about their ideas. Many in each party now deny the other's facts, disapprove of the other's lifestyles, avoid each other's neighborhoods, impugn each other's motives, question each other's patriotism, can't stomach each other's news sources, and bring different value systems to such core institutions as religion, marriage, and parenthood. It is, it is as if we no longer belong to rival parties, but to alien tribes. Yes. And so I think America could use a union church which tries to erase the narcissism of small differences and stands up tall on the twin pillars of those beautiful texts from Micah and Matthew. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly, love God, love neighbor. My friend Steve is the pastor at the Church of the Palms in Sarasota, Florida. Steve is um, a World War II aficionado, and he has visited Normandy and France at least two or three times. And after his last visit, he came back with this story. It sounds apocryphal, but at least it is illustrative. 
and it happens in June of 1944, right around D-Day. Three American paratroopers jumped into the French countryside under cover of night on or around D-Day 1944 in support of the invasion. And they got separated from their company in the confusion and in the darkness. Two of the jumpers survived and one was killed. So the two survivors took the body of their friend to the local Roman Catholic parish in the town closest to them. And they knocked on the rectory door and the priest answered and the Americans said, Father, would you allow us to bury our friend in your cemetery? And the priest asked the guys, was your friend Catholic? And they said, no, he was Protestant. And the priest said, friends, I would love to help you, but my bishop would never allow me to bury a non-Catholic among all our Catholic saints. And the men continued to argue, and the priest continued to resist until finally they reached a compromise. Finally, the priest said, guys, you can bury your friend right outside the cemetery fence. Bury him right up against the fence. And so that's what they did. They dug a grave, and they buried their friend, and they said their prayer, and it was getting dark, so they went to the forest to get some sleep, and they planned to scratch their friend's name and dates into a little piece of wood or a stone to erect a memorial to their friend the next day. And then the next day they got up and went to the cemetery and walked around the perimeter of that cemetery twice and they couldn't find the grave. They had no idea what happened. They didn't know what to do, so they went back to the rectory and knocked on the door. The priest answered and they said, Father, this is a strange thing. Maybe you can help us. We can't find the grave of our friend. Do you know what happened? And the priest said, Yes, friends, I know what happened. I spent half the night worrying about our conversation yesterday and the other half of the night moving the fence. Here at Kenilworth Union Church, we have been moving the fence, expanding the perimeter for 125 years so that there's enough sacred space for anybody who wants to be here. And that's why Kenilworth Union Church is a great idea. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.